Derek Bell, the founder of Critical Race Theory, says that systemic racism, racism, period, is permanent. It can never end. All that can really happen is white people can simply try very hard to resist it, but it really will never end. Hello yet again, and welcome to another episode of the All of Life Show. My name is Stuart White. I'm one of your hosts, along with my beautiful, amazing, lovely, and talented wife, Alicia White. We have a wonderful episode for you guys today. It is an interview. Babe, who did we interview? We interviewed Samuel Say, and this interview is one I have been looking forward to for a very long time. I was first introduced to Samuel via Twitter, and I started following him and reading his blog and just listening to some of his insights into current cultural things going on and uh, other things that he is involved in. He is a Canadian pro-life advocate. He is originally from Ghana, moved over as a boy with his mother, and he is also very outspoken about current issues going on today involving the black community in America and in the world over. So, We wanted to get him on the show and just hear his heart, his perspective on what is going on in the world today and where our hope should actually be fixed. So you want to be sure to listen to this whole episode because it is longer. This is this interview was one of those so good we could not stop. You're going to be listening and you might be thinking, oh, I need to stop. No, I promise you, make it all the way through to the end. And then when you're done, go over to slowtowrite.com and read Samuel's blog. And you can also support him on there. He has a Patreon and you can go, you can support him on a monthly basis. We really want to push that. If you believe in what he's doing, then please, by all means, go support him. You can follow him on Twitter at slow to write. And he's also on uh, various other social media, but he's definitely most active on Twitter. We also have a giveaway that we're doing. This will be for two $25 gift certificates to the restaurant of your choice or a $25 Venmo drop. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts. We would love it if you would give us a five-star review. We'll be choosing two lucky winners that leave reviews. And then after you leave the review, just head on over to the show notes. Send us an email with that link saying that you left the review and how we can contact you. And two people will win. Without further ado... Here's our interview with Samuel Say. Samuel, welcome to the show. We're really glad to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm uh, I'm blessed to be here. For those who don't know, um, I, this is the part of the show where you give a little bit of your bio. Explain who you are, how you came to do what you're doing, and why. This is always a more difficult uh, thing to talk about. I guess I don't know. <laughs> it's a uh, it's easier to talk about, I don't know, critical race theory or something than sometimes talking about myself. I was born in Ghana, uh, West Africa, and I'm biased, but I would say the best African country in the world. <laughs> um, and then I, when I was 10 years old, I moved to Canada, particularly Montreal, Canada, and Quebec, French-speaking side of Canada. And I, um, you know, I was raised by a single mother, um, and, uh, she is a Christian. So I grew up in the church. I grew up now, not very healthy churches. These are prosperity gospel type churches. Um, you know, like the health wealth gospel, the Benny Hinn type of, uh, stuff. But yet when I was 19, by that time we'd moved to Toronto and I went to a young adult uh, event, um, at 19. And again, this, the gospel was, not preached very well um, at this young adults event, but one preacher simply said Christ died for sinners or something like that. And I knew I was a sinner and God just, just I've, since I was five years old, I've known I was a, I was the worst of my friends. I've, I was committing some pretty serious sins at five years old. Um, you know, it's, I don't want to go into much detail, but I was uh, I was exposed to um, sexual sin at that age, and I started committing that um, from that time, uh, which I know shocks people. And the older I get, sometimes I was it, it was so 
I become so, it's so normal to me because it's my life. But the older I get and I look at five-year-olds, I'm like, wow, I was committing that sin at that time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I knew that I was a deeply sinful person. Uh, whenever I'd hear about hell, even at that age, I was like, if I die, that's where I'm going. I knew that. No one had to convince me that I was a sinner. But I needed to be convinced that I could be saved. And when I heard the gospel, um, which I had heard many times, but that day God just opened my my mind and my heart and um, I became a Christian. I became born again and I've been living for him since then, um, full of sin still, but by the grace of God, he's made me born again and I'm being sanctified. Now, as, when I became a Christian, I started just developing a huge passion for theology and for wanting to share the gospel with other people. And over time, over the last um, six, seven years now, since 2014, 2015, one of the biggest issues facing people that I want to share, that I've been trying to share the gospel with has been these you know, racial issues, Black Lives Matter and things like that. So in 2015, I thought the best way for me to share what the gospel says, what the Bible says about you know, Black Lives Matter and about racial issues is through a blog. So I started my blog really to share it with my friends, and since then, um, it's um, you know it's I guess grown enough that it's brought me to you guys today. Um, but then, as I'm writing about Black Lives Matter, writing about racial issues, I'm also understanding that the biggest issue facing Black people isn't racism; it's abortion and especially fatherlessness. Because I know through my story, that was a major reason why I fell into the kind of sins that I did uh, at such a young age. So. Um, that led me to doing the pro-life work with CCBR here in Canada. And, um, yeah, that's my backstory. That's how I ended up um, being involved in these issues. It's an awesome story and just incredible to see how faithful the Lord is to take you from something where like as a kid, you thought, oh, for sure, I'm going to hell and, and God saves you. He redeems you. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about CCBR? What, what does that stand for? And, um, and what, what are the, what is the abortion political climate and and culture like in Canada? How would you say it Mm -hmm. differs from the United Mm -hmm. States? Yeah. CCBR stands for the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Yeah, so we are a pro-life group, particularly, I mean, there are three arms of the pro-life movement. There's a political arm, there is the pastoral arm. The political arm is pretty obvious, you know, just, um, you know, getting pro-life people elected and getting pro-life laws pushed. You have the pastoral arm, which is more so the pregnancy care centers, people who help women with crisis or unplanned pre- uh, pregnancies. And then you have what someone would label as the prophetic arm, but I prefer just calling it the educational arm. That's what, pro- that's what CCBR does. We want to educate Christians and the culture about what abortion really does to preborn babies. So um, we have a number of different things that we do. We have several projects uh, that we do to show people the inhumanity of uh, abortion. And particularly, one thing we're very known for is AVP, uh, which means um, abortion victim photography. Uh, we show people what really does happen to preborn babies when they get uh, aborted. And uh, that's controversial in um, some circles, but we know that it's very effective in saving preborn babies. Uh, throughout history, every social reform group has used uh, victim photography. You know, So for example, a famous one is Emmett Till, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever we mention that name, everyone knows who we're referring to. That really, his photo, um, you know, of photo of, you know, of his funeral, the open casket, is what really jump started and ignited the civil rights movement. So we use images like that to uh, not to shame women or anything like that, but just to have women and men uh, realize that what's happening to uh, babies when they get aborted. Well, if, just for any listeners who are unaware, can you give just a quick what who who was Emmett Till and what led up to that photo, that victim photo? Yeah. So Emmett Till was a I think was a 12 or 13 year old boy um, originally, I think, from Chicago um, or somewhere in Illinois. And he I think it would have been around 1954. He uh, went to visit his cousins I think it was Mississippi. Yeah, I think it was Mississippi. So he he went to go see his uh, relatives. I think for just for the summertime. And while he was there, there's a apparently he may have flirted with a white 
girl there. Um, now, I say he may have because we don't quite know. It's possible. And it's been apparently revealed that she was lying about that entire incident. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, the claim is that he flirted with this white girl. And this is obvious, obviously in the South. So her boyfriend, um, I think it was a boyfriend or maybe her husband at the time, heard about this. And he and his friend went found out about where uh, Emmett Till was um, was staying with his uh, relatives, and then they kidnapped him from the home and lynched him. And a few days later, they found his body, and his body was completely mutilated. They could not even he didn't in any way he didn't look human. Um, they could not identify him except for I think a ring that he had on his uh, on his hand. And after that, his mom was obviously so distraught by it all um, that she decided to have an open casket so that the whole world would see what had happened to her boy. And um, that picture went viral. Uh, my mom actually was, you know, growing up in Ghana. Um, you know, she knows about the story because it just became a worldwide story and it brought the whole world to realize what was happening to black people in the segregated South. Mm-hmm. And just to show you the influence, direct influence of Emmett Till, Rosa Parks mentioned the reason why she didn't get off the bus um, in Montgomery, um, you know, when she was being told to, you know, to get off or to remove or to get off of her seat was because she remembered Emmett Till and what had happened to um, to him. So, and then of course that led to Martin Luther King Jr. himself also being involved with Rosa Parks and that jumpstarted the uh, civil rights movement. That story of Emmett Till, every time I hear it, it's like if you have humanity within you and you hear about that sort of thing and that story in particular, it just like moves you to tears every time. I'm just like how, and and knowing that the, the men who committed the crimes basically got off scot-free. Yes. I didn't mention that. That's a big part of yeah. the issue. Yeah. 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 Well, I think that's a good segue. Although I want to, I want to go to the um, victim photography thing again, because mm-hmm. using that example of this is something where this tremendous evil was committed, tremendous racism was committed. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right, like taking that same idea and, and saying, okay, well, these are victims as well. And, and I know you've spoken about the, the greatest threat to uh, the black community is abortion. And Mm -hmm. so now I've had people say, well, the reason people are offended by victim photography of abortion is the same reason they would be offended if they were watching a surgery. You know, if they were watching somebody have a heart transplant, it's just it's just graphic. It's they're not they don't like blood. And Mm -hmm. um, and I've I've thought, no, I I don't think that is it. Uh, It's it would seem that there's there's something more significant to that. Um, Mm -hmm. Could you speak to that a little bit? Like, how would you respond to that type of? Yeah, Um, there definitely is a segment of the population that hates those images because of just the graphic nature of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I hate those images myself. Um, I have them in my room and I will look at it myself from time to time because I want to be reminded of it. But I hate the pictures. It's difficult to look at. However, uh, as you were saying, the main reason why people hate those images because it exposes what abortion really is and what's happening. Mm-hmm. And also one in four women in Canada and America have had abortions uh, or will have an abortion in their lifetime. Wow. That's one in four. So in America, uh, I think the population is what, 350 million, which would mean roughly there is 175 women. I'm very bad at math, but one in four of 875 women, I'm guessing is somewhere around what, uh, 60 million um, have had an abortion in their lifetime. So, or will have an abortion in their lifetime. And some of those just, may of be course, multiples. <laughs> some of sorry? them may be multiple abortions. Ex- exactly. Exactly. And also that's just, again, one in four women, but then they also have, um, they also have, you know, their husbands, they have their friends, their brothers who are, who some of them will know about the abortion and they're also affected by it as well. Mm-hmm. So when people see the images, they're not just seeing these little humans who've been murdered, who've been killed. They're seeing what many of them have actually done or they're seeing what their friends and relatives have done as well. So they react deeply about it, not just because of the you know of the humans in the picture but the humans that they know 
who've also contributed to those images themselves. And I think that's a big part of it, right? There is a guilt um, that comes with it. Now, of course, you know, and I've had talks with many women who've, who will see those images and they will confess their abortions to me. And I'll say, we cannot go back to change what we've done. What you can do is mourn for your actions, grieve and call to Christ and repent. And I always say that for women who are post-abortive, women or men who've played a role in abortion, I always say, look, if you repent and you're in Christ, the most significant thing about you isn't what you did to your child. It's what Christ did, it's what God did to his only son for you. And that is your identity. It is not in your sin. It is in Christ's righteousness. So we don't want anyone to leave with shame when they see the picture. We want them to leave by seeing that abortion is wrong and that if they have committed that sin um, or if they've just been apathetic about it, that they can mourn, grieve over that and do something about it. Have you found that there are people, women or men, who as they come to you when you are showing these pictures or or standing out and, and speaking out against these things, that they initially are very violently opposed to you, like maybe not in physical violence, but in their words. And then in the process, you find that they actually have had these things themselves and it's more the guilt of, of their shame that they're carrying and suddenly they break. Yeah. Because of my size, most people don't uh, try to come at me too much with that. But there have been several people, several women or, um, and men especially who've tried to, um, either be violent physically or just with their rhetoric. And, and there have been absolutely many times where uh, many of them will come um, with tears or just with deep anger and by just calming down and just talking to them. And just, you know, because many times people think that we're aggressive and we're, but that's not what we are. We're, you know, by the grace of God, we're gentle and um, we go in there with humility. We're not going there for, to shame anybody. We're going there to save preborn babies. And we know that if we're going to be aggressive about it, now there's nothing wrong with being passionate and we're passionate. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with, you know, loudly proclaiming the truth, but we just don't want to go, we don't want to go attack people. That won't do anything. Um, but yes, there've been many people who will come to us in anger. Um, and at the end they will, um, I mean, I've, for example, I've had a woman who came to me she was yelling at me for like 15, 20 minutes. And I was just calmly just reminding her of truth and being compassionate. At the end, we left with a hug. And, um, you know, she understood why I was there. And she thanked me for being there just after she was yelling at me for 15, 20 minutes. There have been men who've tried to um, attack me and I'll just be calm about it. And I'll just say, you know, and I, and I don't know, look, there's a saying that when you throw a, a, a rock at uh, a pack of dogs, the one who yells the loudest is the one that got hit. Right. So the people who are most aggressive at us are usually people who have a direct uh, experience with abortion. So because of that, I am I try to be as extra, you know, gentle with those people, knowing many times the reason why they're doing that is because they're directly um, you know, involved in the abortion and they're lashing out in that way. So when I can remind them of truth, not mincing words on what the nature of abortion is, being truthful in there, but also not mincing words and being gracious and kind to them and just reminding them of biblical truth. Um, oftentimes, not all the time, but oftentimes they come around and at the very least, they'll understand why I'm there. My own father, he used to be on the radio in Seattle when I was a kid and he was involved with a um, pro-life movement uh, there mm-hmm. called Life Choices. And um, he, they would regularly raise funds and they would do all these things to, to help that movement. And eventually, one day he shared his own story, which was when he was around 17 years old, he got his girlfriend pregnant mm-hmm. and he, they, he wasn't a believer but he still had asked her, please, please don't have an abortion. He begged her and mm. she went through with it anyway. And mm. uh, for somebody that age, anybody really, but when you aren't even prepared to deal with most of the things life has to throw at you, for him, it really wrecked him. He, he was yeah. very broken about that. But then to see the way that God took that and used 
the brokenness of that situation. And, Mm -hmm. and it was, it wasn't too much for him. It was, God was able to say, Hey, yeah, that, that pain, I'm going to turn that into beauty. I'm going to take that Mm -hmm. and we're going to save lives and we're going to do it on a scale that you would never think possible. Mm -hmm. How, how would you say in Canada, you, you kind of talked about this a little bit, but maybe unpack a little more, the difference from Canada and the United States, the abortion industry there. Um, it, it, I've heard that it's a little more progressive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Canada is the only democracy in the world with zero laws and abortion. Um, so, um, we, meaning there's zero restrictions on abortion. So in Canada, it is legal to have an abortion on the very day you're due. It's, um, we are radically pro-abortion. Justin Trudeau, our, our prime minister, is the most, the, the biggest funder of abortion in the world. A lot of, he's committed, I think, up to $2 billion uh, to uh, pushing abortion um, you know, overseas. And he did that after Trump had reinstated the Mexico City policy, which now Joe Biden has, um, you know, revoked and removed. But he did that because he really wanted Canada to be, in his mind, the beacon of the abortion industry in the world. So uh, Ubiano Okocha, I don't know if you guys are familiar with her, but she is a Nigerian-British um, she's the one that she wrote a book uh, tar- called Target Africa, where she talks about how especially a lot of Western nations, but especially uh, Canada uh, through Trudeau has been very, very influential in pushing um, abortion in um, vulnerable African nations. So that's the political side. And then also uh, we have, I always tell Americans, you know, I know the Republican Party are very disappointing um, as well too. However, they are really a blessing in some ways um, because they are still generally across the world, probably the most pro-life party still in the world. And if not, definitely amongst the top five. Our conservative party here would be the equivalent of the Republican Party in Canada. They they are still officially Mm pro-abortion and they are to this day working hard to silence pro-life members and voters end up in the party. So they are, if there's going to be a pro-life party in Canada, uh, or at least a pro-life, a major party that would be pro-life, it's going to come through the conservative party. And because they know that they're, they work hard to stifle the pro-life movement here in Canada. Um, The last conservative leader uh, was Andrew Scheer. And he was a believer uh, or he is a believer, I should say, and he is pro-life, and yet even he publicly would work very hard to shy away from saying that he would do, he would try to do something in Canada as a prime minister to save uh, pre-born babies. So that's what we're dealing with here in our country. Uh, the pro-life movement here is growing. I'm very grateful for CCBR's work and some of our partners' work on these on the, the pro-life movement. But although we're growing, we're still relatively pretty small. Uh, here compared to the pro-life movement in Canada, I mean, in the U.S. It's crazy to think like we in the United States, as as you oppose these types of things, you think we're opposing the worst, you know, the worst case scenario seems like abortion. And then it's like you find out other countries and even now the United States, like New York has passed some pretty, pretty insane uh, legislation for abortion, uh, same mm-hmm. as to like up to the same day for any reason where it used to be, um, it's, it's tragic. It's, it's sad, but it needs to be available. Like that used to be kind of more the, yeah. the left yeah. position. Yeah. And now it's become, um, Hey, it's a woman's right. Whatever she wants yeah. to do to her baby yeah. inside her yeah. body, it's just a clump of cells. It's a clump of yeah. cells up to the day that, of delivery, and it's her choice if she wants to suffocate it and 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 let it die. And I know that sounds harsh, but that that really is the the yeah. the mindset that goes behind it. It's like this this gets kind of weird. I, I have a friend who's always joked we should just allow it up until the age of eighteen, like a post abortion. <laughs> like let's yeah. just keep it going, you know, because you yeah. know what if the parent changes their mind? Like hey, look. I've, I've given it 18 years. I'm tired of this. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, yeah. this is unbelievable. And he's, he's jesting of course, but the, the absurdity that happens and 
many people will say like the slippery slope argument. That's what you're saying is like, well, if we do this, then it's going to lead to this. And that's absurd. That There's no place. That's just quit making that slippery slope argument. Mm-hmm. And then you go, let's reflect a bit on history. Exactly. This, this slope has gotten pretty slippery. Like where does it go from here? Yeah. And, and you can tell for, cause look at New York. 30 years ago, how many Americans would have imagined that um, even New York, as liberal as they are, would say, yes, we need to have abortion up to uh, full term. That would have been, as you said before, the whole idea was safe, safe, legal and rare. That was their rhetoric. Now it's just, as you said, abortion on demand. And then even euthanasia, that comes out of um, the pro-abortion movement as well, too. Here in Canada right now, they're about to pass a bill here that would essentially allow... So initially, the original bill, um, which was passed several years ago, was if you had any kind of terminal illness, then you could you know, you know, could get euthanasia or what they call doctor-assisted suicide at any point you wanted to. But now, naturally, they've progressed it to um, if you just have some kind of mental illness, then you can um, get, uh, you can basically commit suicide uh, with somebody else helping you uh, do so, which is murder. But um, all these, so all to the left, you know, the pro-abortion side, they can talk about the slippery slope argument, but it's an argument because it's real. It happens. Um, naturally, with our, you know, our sinful nature, we are, anytime you're committing and committing sin, you're always going to be tempted to go past that sin. There's something too, I think in politics, um, we label things with a name that actually is not a true description of what it is. So we, we label a political movement, um, progressive ism and, and we, we say, well, I'm for progress. Who wouldn't be for progress? Um, we, we label it pro choice. Well, of course I wouldn't want to not have a choice. If I, I go to the restaurants, I want more than one thing on the menu. I want a choice. And it's this sneaky way of deceiving people who I think it really relies upon people not thinking. They're not committing much effort to the process of considering what it is that they are doing. They have somebody else do it all for them. So a a lot of their uh, political ideology, um, a lot of their moral ideology is built upon, uh, oh, these words? Well, these sound positive, so I'm I'm for them. Um, Yeah. And I, I think even that thought that kind of segues into you mentioned Black Lives Matter. So we want to I want to pivot over to that and, and talk about mm-hmm. that, because I know that's something you've been very vocal uh, on your blog and on, on Twitter about. Um, that is one where it's the sentiment itself. Black Lives Matter. Who would disagree with that? Who could possibly? Mm-hmm. And of course, like I, I absolutely agree with that sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that it behind it is hidden um, something more. Could you, could you dig into that a little bit for us? Yeah. Um, I believe that the term black lives matter is probably the most brilliant title for a movement, probably in history. It is brilliant. Cause as you said, how can you disagree with that? And it's, it's so emphatic that you wouldn't even think to ask, well, what do they mean? Like, what are their, what's their goal? You just assume all they really mean is that black lives matter. And yet Satan appears as an angel of light. Satan does not, you know, approach someone and says, oh, I'm a liar, a slanderer, the accuser, I'm the devil. That's not what he says. I'm an angel of light. And in a similar way, Black Lives Matter, um, they're not going to, you know, because they do have an evil ideology, they're not going to come in and tell people that, yes, this is these are, these are our main goals. So Black Lives Matter is a very cunning uh, term. And again, the term itself we all agree with, but I've, I've said this before in that, you know, Planned Parenthood, many people are, you know, we believe that, yes, you, you should plan your life, you should plan parenting, all that. But we wouldn't, we would know, we know that the term Planned Parenthood means a lot more than just a term. It means an organization that kills babies. So Black Lives Matter The term itself, we all agree with, but the ideology behind it is critical race theory, which is um, synonymous with the term social justice, which believes that America is fundamentally, or the West is fundamentally um, white supremacist, that it was created by white supremacists to uh, maintain privileges and white supremacy. 
um, for white people, especially white men. And um, they, they, they have a primarily a Marxist and postmodernist framework. So they are against what we would refer to as liberalism. Now, not so much political liberalism, I'm referring to ideological liberalism. So I mean, things like democracy, that they're really not for it. So for example, in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, Ibram Kendi says that racial discrimination, it's not wrong if it's going to produce racial equity for black people, meaning it's okay to strip certain rights from white people if it's going to benefit black people. The end justifies so, the means. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So they are a socialist group, uh, essentially, and they want to dismantle, um, you know, white, uh, they, they, want to men they want to dismantle the American system or the Canadian system. We have a Black Lives Matter here as well, too. And, you know, so that's why when they see George Floyd being killed, for them, it's irrelevant what, uh, what um, I'm forgetting. What uh, I'm forgetting his name. Um, the officer, Derek Chauvin's, the, the cop who. Yeah, it's 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 irrelevant what his intentions were because in their ideology, America is built um, in white supremacy. So even if white people intend to do so or not, every all their values, their entire culture, all their thoughts, all their all their intentions, all their actions are designed to harm black people. So even though Derek Chauvin may not have it, you know, himself thought, I hate, I want to kill this person because he's black, in their mind, that's why Derek Chauvin, that's why Derek Chauvin killed or at least contributed to um, to um, um, George Floyd's death. So then they would use that as a basis to want to dismantle um, certain systems in America, such as, of course, defunding the police and things like that. Isn't it interesting that <clears throat> in critical race theory, white people are born racist, basically, but but the same argument would be that um, that they would also argue people aren't born sinners. <laughs> yeah, it's a that's a great point. Um, it's a very it's it's the thing. It's there. Are, that's why it's postmodern, right? In that their ideologies are very con are contradictory in many ways. So, for example, they say that. Race itself is a social construct, which is true. We Christians would say, yes, there's only the one human race and that's it. And yet they would say that being colorblind is actually racist. So they would say that Martin Luther King's ideas are racist. And they would say that we, knew, we do need to realize. So I've said before that white supremacists and critical race theorists have a lot in common, that they both believe that your skin color shapes your identity, they shape who you are. So if you're a white person, you know, and they're in for critical race theorists, as you said, you are born as a racist and you cannot undo it. All you can do is basically suppress it by being a white ally to black people. And if you're a black person, just by being black, you already are a victim and you cannot escape it on your own unless white people through the white guilt are able to just help you along in doing so. How do you explain right now the divide that we're seeing in the church and progressive Christianity um, about people who are like basically woke pastors who are shifting more into uh, the support of the Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, there are a lot of reasons behind that. The leaders of the church are not supposed to be the most vulnerable people to this, but it's been building up for a long time. You, you mentioned the Christian right uh, in the past. The Christian right, you know, starting really with the um, the moral majority in the 80s and 90s, they in many ways were captured by fundamentalist um, ideas where oftentimes they would make politics an idol. Uh, not for everybody, for, me, for some people, that's what they would do. They'd focus too much on politics and very little on good theology or the gospel. Mm -hmm. And because of that, a number of Christian leaders decided to do the go to correct that, but they overcorrected that. Where now they never addressed politics. They never addressed a biblical worldview on things. So that's a big problem. Then because of that, you have all these people in their churches being raised without a biblical foundation as to how to think on these issues. 
especially as the church becomes more diverse. Um, you know, I, I don't know where you guys stand theologically, but I am a, I'm a Calvinist. I'm a reformed uh, Christian. And I, w- I am one of the many black people in the West that became reformed in the mid um, 2000s and onward. And a lot of black people became reformed and joined these um, predominantly white uh, reformed churches. And when that happened, people were so excited and started to boast really about this multi-ethnic reformed movement that was developing. The problem is they never addressed still biblical worldviews because most black people like myself um, in the past anyway, before I became a Christian, we were raised with a more um, leftist thinking. We, though we were not woke the way we are, you know, the way many people are now, at least at the time, we had been raised to believe that our society is against us. So when we came to these churches, since that was never really addressed, since especially the Christian response to slavery and segregation was never addressed, we had this false unity that Vadi Bokum talks about. And Vadi Bokum has, a, I know he's, he has, um, you know, health issues right now. And um, if anybody can, they should be praying for him. Yeah, for sure. Um, but he has a book coming out in April and it's incredible, um, incredible book where he addresses all these issues. But he talks about how there's been this false unity amongst a lot of people in the church and it wasn't exposed until Black Lives Matter really emerged. And when they emerged, people especially a lot of black people believed that since it never been addressed that, oh, of course our pastors and our fellow church members would agree that black lives matter is a good thing. So when they realized that a lot of their pastors and friends in the church don't agree on it, immediately they believed that, oh, that you don't believe that my black lives matter. Because again, there wasn't that foundation of biblical worldviews there. And then when I think these leaders realized that the people they've been discipling, they've been boasting about for so long, were now claiming they were racist for not agreeing with them immediately. I think because of a, 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 a kind of seeker sensitive thinking by wanting to keep the black people in their churches, by wanting to attract more black people to their churches, they decided to say, well, then I must be doing something wrong. So then let me start reading the Ibram Kendi's. Let me start reading the Robin DiAngelo's and, you know, the Kimberly Crenshaw's, all these guys. And then they became more and more woke. Uh, I think those are all the different reasons as to why a lot of Christians right now, especially Christian leaders, are embracing critical race theory. Do you think that a lot of the the culture behind it, the fuel behind the current anti-racism movement is rooted in almost a sense of guilt that most people today – and I'm not – and I want to be careful because I'm not going to say there is no racism. There is no – nothing ever happens that's racist. There very clearly are people who are doing – evil things, behaving in evil ways. Um, But do you think a lot is now you have people who've heard stories like my grandparents were slaves and, you know, endured all this evil and, um, and they feel for one, they feel like a connection to that, but two, they feel like maybe guilt that I haven't gone through the same thing. So there's almost been this creation of aggression toward them. Um, You know, we have things in college campuses, microaggressions and, and things uh, do, do you think there's something to that? Or, like, is is it just this, I want to feel like I am connected to, to my past? Absolutely. I am so glad you mentioned this. Um, how do I say this? This is the consequences of many, many years, many decades of a lot of people tying Black identity or to slavery. So, for example, even right now with in Black History Month, the biggest focus is on slavery and segregation and all the heroes of that. And again, that's there's nothing wrong with addressing slavery and segregation. I'm a student of history. I love studying all that stuff. But there's more to being a black person than that side of history, which is a relatively small part. I mean, even black people, you know, for since the beginning of time, um, you know, so to just focus on those issues, you're then going to tempt people to believe that I cannot be authentically black if I don't identify with the black heroes. Because if you look at black heroes, the people that black people aspire to be, 
for the most part, they're all civil rights heroes or people who are anti-racist. So then there's that temptation to believe that if you need to be a hero, that so for example, this is, I'm, I'm deviating a little bit, but LeBron James, for example, was heavily criticized by a number of people. And now he has universal acclaim because he's become extremely passionate about the woke stuff recently. And they all know that if you are a black celebrity and you really want to gain respect from you know, the so-called black community, it's by being woke. So then people want to identify in that way. But it's so sad because black people who are suffering from slavery and segregation, they didn't want to be victims. They wanted to be free. But you have the most privileged black people in history right now so desperately wanting to be victims. Now, of course, not wanting to be real victims, but wanting to be perceived as victims, right? Because they're still tweeting all these things from their iPhone, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, and also there is actually a fascinating issue. So I am a African, um, you know, an African immigrant to Canada. And for a long time, there were, there were tensions between black Americans or the descendants of of um, slaves with Africans, because this is a part that everyone wants to forget about. But Africans, not all Africans, but a number of Africans, well, actually every slave essentially, um, you know, through, through the Atlantic slave trade, well, was owned by black people and then sold to Europeans. Mm. That's why Frederick Douglass was like, um, um, this is the abolitionist uh, Douglass, he mentioned at the time when a lot of the well, a lot of the abolitionists were talking about uh, many black Americans going to Liberia, which many of them did, of course. He mentioned why would he want to go back to the African chiefs in West Africa? They'd be just as bad, if not worse, than the slave owners in in uh, in the U.S. And that's been there for a long time. And now, since so many black immigrants from Africa, whose many of their ancestors actually sold slaves. Since they now identify as victims, uh, some Black Americans, Black Canadians who are direct uh, descendants of slaves are like, well, wait a minute, don't try to um, don't try to align yourself with my ancestors, because it was actually your ancestors who actually sold them into slavery. So the point is, you have people who want to be victims of slavery and segregation, who themselves benefited, at least back in Africa, from their own ancestors selling and owning slaves. So this goes to show you some people's pure desire to want to be victims just by just by virtue of being black. You know, so yeah, um, unfortunately, it is a it is very concerning. So for example, there was a um, 20 years ago, there was a poll around, actually more than 20 years ago, it would have been maybe 97. And there was a poll um, for all, I think it was for both white people too, but especially the results from the black people were very interesting. They polled young black people and they asked them, how significant is slavery in, sorry, is racism in your life? And roughly 89% said little or no effect at all. This is 19, this is 1997. Wow. Now, there was a study that came out from the New York Times, which claimed that the average black, young black person in America suffers five racist incidents every day. So you go from 89 percent 25 years ago, give or take, saying racism plays no real, uh, is not really a factor in their life to now this claim of the average black person suffering racism, uh, which is, which is events five times a day. Why? Because we've changed, as you said, the definition of racism, where now everything is a microaggression. If someone, if someone were to tell me that I have nice hair, that's microaggression. If someone, you know, would to say to me, which I make fun of myself for this all the time, that Sam, you look ashy today, you know, because I didn't lotion myself, that's a microaggression, that's racist. Um, and it's really sad, right? Because it's making, it's creating a culture of, um, a, a culture where a lot of black people are then being compelled to become victims. And then a lot of white people are then choosing to believe that just by identifying as racist when they're not really racist, it's really what's in their best interest and the best interest of our culture. What do you suppose is the benefit of those who would desire to continue to convince black people that they are victims? 
like I usually look at that. There's that saying, follow the money. There's usually some truth behind that. Like yeah. somebody in this stands to gain a lot by keeping yeah. black people in America convinced that you are a victim all day, every day. Yeah. Um, Booker T. Washington, uh, this is over a hundred years ago, um, said there is a class of black people, even at that time, even during segregation, that there was a class of black people who who did who did not want um, at the time even genuine racism to end because then they would lose their career and that's what's happening right now so I always ask people this you know as a pro-life advocate my job essentially ends when we end abortion when abortion is illegal for the most part we're done but right now what is what is the goal for a group like Black Lives Matter when does when when does their job end it won't because their ideology already is even though there's no law that is explicitly against black people the culture itself is racist against black people which means it will never end and in fact critical race theory say this right derek bell the founder of critical race theory says that systemic racism racism period is permanent it can never end. All that can really happen is white people can simply try very hard to resist it, but it really will never end. And of course, that's ben that's, that benefits their careers because then there's always something new that they can call racist, always. And you, you see that through a lot of the, the hoaxes that happen with um, what uh, Dave Chappelle, uh, you know, he calls him a juicy Smollett uh, <laughs> or Smollett um, in that, you know, Jesse Smollett who, um, had you know had a good career and everything and yet he faked a uh he you know he he lied about being attacked by uh white people why because he knew it would further his career and that's how sad it is right that this privileged person already who has millions of dollars and is having this privileged life knew he would become even more privileged if he were to claim he was a victim that's quite ironic right by claiming you're a victim you gain more a more privileged status um, so a lot of it is indeed by money. And of course, the more you convince black people that they're oppressed, the more they will obviously uh, want to support your work. And the more, especially politically, they will vote for the Democrats. Yeah, I, I know um, the work of people like Candace Owens and, and others, they have really begin to, uh, I, I think, be a threat to the Democratic Party in the United States, and uh, rightly so, I think. And, and there, you know, it's interesting because there are things where I might go, okay, as a Christian, I actually disagree with your approach, right? I disagree with this part of the way that, you know, Candace or anybody else may say certain things, and she says she's a Christian as well. Um, but overall, the, the idea that she has is, there has been um, a, a belief that if you are black in America, your vote is owned by the Democrat Party, and mm -hmm. and so you you better not vote any other way. And it's it's uh, it is racist in itself, and to to think that like hey get get fall in line, get back in line. You you better mm -hmm. vote the way we tell you to, um, and then if you don't. We will publicly shame you. We will publicly humiliate you. We will call you out yeah. and, just and ruin your life. It's a form of slavery. Yeah, it's, it's the latest mm -hmm. form of slavery. If you want to talk about uh, a microaggression that's not even that micro, like that that might actually be a yeah. more legitimate form of such a thing. Yeah, just uh, last night I had a talk with a friend of mine. Uh, she's also black. And she was like, Sam, do you identify as black? <laughs> I was like, well, no, I just am. I just, well, I'm just black. I don't, but she's like, yeah, but do you identify with black people? Do you identify with the black culture? And it's that same idea, um, you know, that if you're black, you have to think a certain way, you have to vote a certain way, you have to do certain things. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's incredibly wrong. It, it, it's, I, I was saying to her, like, do you realize what you're saying? You you know, especially since she would claim she's a Christian, um, our skin color is just a skin color. It's it's not a race. It's you know. So never mind. Never mind the you know the idea that you even have to do certain things to be black. It's that you're. You, you, it doesn't. It's not even your identity. 
It's just your skin color, what you look like. Um, you know, but unfortunately, this has become a major, a major market, uh, racism, selling racism and selling these ideas. And uh, I really appreciate what Kenneth Owens uh, has done in many ways. I don't agree with her on a lot of things, uh, but she's absolutely right that the Democrats, um, you know, and it's also true here too, in many cases and with our um, with our politics here, that they want to sell a certain kind of slavery uh, to black people to just keep just to keep their vote to keep them uh, to keep uh, control of them, which is why Joe Biden can say what he said, which is one of the most racist things a president has said since probably Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. Um, in that, you know, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. <laughs> it's that was shocking. Yeah. And yet, of course, people were defending him for saying that because they agree with him. Yeah. Sam, um, that's what you just mentioned there was so good. Tell us how, with our identity in mind, how does the gospel and a biblical worldview, how is that the most anti-racist view we can hold? Well, the Bible says, and critical race theories hate, hate this, and for good reason. The Bible says there's no Jew or Greek. There's no male or female. There's no slave or free. You're all one in Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, even your, if your ethnicity in of itself, if even your gender or your social, socioeconomic status is irrelevant, not that they're not necessarily important. Of course, you know, God made us that way. We delight in that. But they are irrelevant to who you really, really are in Christ. And that in our unity is not based on our identities is based in, well, it's not based on our um, gender or social economic status or ethnicities based in identity in Christ. And that's, again, for immutable things like that, never mind even your skin color, right? So the gospel is completely anti, um, is, is, is against critical race theory. And it's truly also in a real sense, anti-racist because we are made in the image of God, and by the grace of God, when he, when Christ saves sinners of of all kinds, he um, God makes us makes us and is sanctifying us into the image of Christ, so that what I'm striving for is to be more like Christ. I'm not striving um, for anything else. So, for a lot of white people who read this, who may feel the burden of being anti-racist, God has called you to be like Him. You know, Christ is not an anti-racist the way people uh, talk about it today. Of course, Christ hates racism because we know that we're not supposed to be hating any of our neighbors. We're supposed to love our neighbors of all, all kinds of our neighbors. But critical race theory and anti-racism actually wants us to hate white people. They want white people to hate themselves. And that's, of course, evil. There's... I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians when he's talking about, you know, hey, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So, you know, stand firm. Don't go being burdened again to a yoke of slavery. And in this, he's he's talking to them about slavery under the law. But you could, I think, pull that and stretch that to any anything that is taking you away from your freedom in Christ and is putting mm. you back under a burden of slavery that thing is anti-gospel. That thing is mm -hmm. anti-Christ. And mm -hmm. I was I was reading some of your blog recently, in fact, and and you mentioned the very thing. Like, if you want to be anti-racist, uh, believe the gospel, preach the gospel, live like Christ. If if you want to be the opposite, you can be like what who, the people Paul was opposing in the Book of Galatians. He's he's opposing them because. They um, they referred to them as the Judaizers. They were saying, yeah, you can be a Christian, but first you have to become a Jew. And first you have to do all of these steps. And first you have to signal your virtue in these ways. And then once you're prepared, then you can become a Christian. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how we think, you know, we're so modern, we're so uh, new to, um, or, or all these new things that we discovered are brand new and they're actually old. They're just recycled ideas. Yeah. And, and what we have today, I think, is a form of 
of Judaizer mentality where it's like, we're going to put you back under these laws, you know, Hey, Hey, uh, Christian church first, you have to get all of your white people to behave in this particular way to, to weep, wail and mourn, but not to God, not to repent to Christ. You need Mm. to go and, um, and repent of sins you yourselves may have never done because your Mm. whole your whole identity group. Now, now we're getting back into, we're putting you into identity groups. We're, we're Mm. calling you uh, separate from those people instead of saying we're all one in Christ. As you mentioned earlier, there's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free. Um, Mm -hmm. That is, I think as you know, the gospel, like there's that illustration people use of when they're trying to teach people how to identify, um, fake currencies they they get them really used to seeing the real thing and Mm. i my encouragement to to christians Mm. is know jesus know the gospel know Mm. what is truly truly true and then as these things come along you may not have like the immediate uh intellectual answer to everything but you will know something just sits wrong with me about this um Mm. i've had this sitting in services at, at churches where uh, I couldn't tell you right away why, and it, it, it had nothing to do with race or whatever, but something in the way the preaching was happening, it, something wasn't right. Something was missing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, they're, they're preaching uh, salvation by works. They're not mm-hmm. preaching gospel. They're preaching something, you know, of earning your own salvation and, and doing these things that have nothing to do with what Christ has done for you. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, Usually, I think that's what we see happen in in all of these cultural things. Um, and, and add to that that, and I know this is long-winded here. This is what I'm good at. Um, <laughs> it, add to that that we have, a, especially in the West, a, a mentality of separating your uh, religious from the um, public life. You know, that's your yeah. private religious life. That has no business informing your personal, uh, your political beliefs or culture or any of that. That's just your your magical thinking. And mm-hmm. if it makes you happy, whatever makes you happy, just don't tell that to anybody else. Um, and uh, really, our worldview as Christians should be formed and shaped by the gospel because either it's true, and if it's true, it has all these implications on everything all of life is our, our, our show is, is built off of that title, all of life. Um, but, or it's not, but you can't tell mm. you, I think that so many Christians, so many believers are in such a, just tension in a conundrum of, of thought. They don't know how to think. They don't know how to be, they mm. don't know how to show up in things because they've given that ground over to, oh yeah, yeah, this is just my private religious life. It has no business um, in my political life, in my work life, in my family life or, or whatever. Or if it does, it's mostly just in a you know non-truthful way. And mm-hmm. Nancy Piercy, she has a book, Total Truth, where she talks about this deeper, but the that sacred secular divide and how if we fall for that, we're going to... Yep have a lot of what we, I think we have a lot today of the result of this, giving up the ground mm-hmm. instead of saying all truth is God's truth. This whole world is his and it's in his hands. But I think we have a very real enemy who seeks to divide, who seeks to conquer. And mm-hmm. he, and as you mentioned earlier, like he appears as an angel of light. He, he appears as a good movement. He appears as mm-hmm. a righteous movement, even at times. Um, and, and I would mm-hmm. say this, this holds true for Republicans Democrats, conservatives, mm-hmm. liberals, if you deviate from Christ, if you deviate from the gospel in any way uh, and begin to say, this takes priority, I think it everything else just starts to fall apart. You cut mm-hmm. out the foundation of truth from, from everything else. Sam, thank you so much for being here today. It has been an honor talking with you. Um, God has given you a platform and a mission that he has not given many and you are brave and bold and I'm sure you get a lot of hate mail, but we support you. (laughs) We totally support you and we appreciate your time being here today. Thank you for speaking out and speaking the truth. How can people find you if they want to follow you? Yeah, uh, people can find me um, across all social platforms, except for Gab. I think uh, it's, it's become very popular, but I'm not there yet. Um, but yeah, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, I'm all there. And um, 
yeah people want to you know reach out to me they can also find me at slowtorider@gmail.com. Um, I usually try I try very hard to reply to as many emails as I possibly can if not all of them so yeah and I really enjoyed this really thank you guys for having me anytime you want to have me back please let me know oh yeah for we sure. would love to have you back yeah. we appreciate it God bless okay.